Well, good morning, friends. I am live from my house. Kind of feels like about a year ago, doesn't it? Uh, we are snowed in here in Dallas. I hope that those of you who are here in the Dallas area are safe and warm and have power. Um, the power's been out to the church for a while. Um, and so I know some of you are experiencing these you know, so-called rolling blackouts, even though they don't seem to be rolling very fast. Um, and so I just hope you all are safe. I wanted to continue Bible study because some of you are just at home. And so let's study together. Let's say our prayers together. And this being Ash Wednesday, uh, we have an opportunity to begin Lent together. Um, unfortunately, because power's out and roads are slick and the stuff around the church is just too, too slick. Um, we can't do in-person Ash Wednesday worship today, but we will have a service at noon that will stream on all the platforms. Um, I actually went up to the church yesterday, power out by myself with my little camera, um, and did the Ash Wednesday worship service. Eric Lyles is a preacher. He did the sermon from home. We kind of put it together. Um, and so I hope that it is a comfort to you on this Ash Wednesday as we begin this Lenten journey. For those of you at St. Michael, you know that we are doing Lent in a particular way that brings Lent home to you. We are going to have podcasts that begin today. Today begins our podcast series. And so if you do not follow us with our weekday podcasts, I really encourage you to do so. You can go to our website and get a link, but you can search for St. Michael and All Angels in any podcast player and see our Lenten series. Every weekday, we have those daily readings and a clergy meditation. Everything is nice and short, seven to 10 minutes, so that you can really begin your day well. In addition to that, we have our Lent kits. I hope you are going to be building your home altar today and that you will be continuing to expand and build on that altar every Sunday through Lent as we prepare for the resurrection at Easter. And as you noted in your kits, I would love to see pictures of your home altars. And so please send pictures of those to info at stmichael.org. We've already received a few and they're beautiful. So I hope that even though we can't be together in person this Ash Wednesday, you feel the love from your church community, are deeply connected, and can really begin this Lenten journey in a good way. There's plenty around us to remind us of why life is hard and to remind us why we need God, why we need to cling to God and have faith in God's presence and in God's support. So today, we're going to be looking at chapter 12 of Revelation. Since the church has no power, I'm going to actually be streaming the pre-recorded service for Ash Wednesday from my home. So we're going to end Bible study today just a little early, 11.15, 11.20, so I have a chance to actually pivot and be able to stream that for everyone at noon. So, chapter 12, we will jump right in with a prayer and then get going. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, today we come to you grateful for the gift of this life, and we ask you in particular to be present with and watch over and protect those who are suffering most during this winter storm, those without power, 
those who are struggling with clean water, those without homes. We ask that you put your veil of protection around them. Help each one of us who are secure and safe and warm to do what we can to reach out and support those who are not. We especially hold in front of you those who are sick and those who are near death. May they not be alone. And may the hands that reach out to care for them help to heal them as best as possible, always reminding them of your presence and your love. All those who ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've got a weird setup today, so I'm hoping that if we are going to be <laughs> doing something together, um, that we're going to have a consistent experience here, but my notes and my computer and everything are in a little bit different place. So we're going to jump in with the Rector's Bible Study Chapter 12 of Revelation. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to tell you, remember there's a new podcast of the audio recordings of this. And so if you listen to the audio then you can now get it as a podcast. You don't have to go through our website and SoundCloud and that sort of stuff. So search for Rector's Bible Study wherever you listen to your podcasts and you will find it. All right, so let's jump in. Chapter 12. Now, reminder kind of where we are in our big story. We've heard that this, the seventh trumpet, right, that has sounded. We know what will happen because as I noted last week, we get all of these trumpets and we in effect kind of see the end of the story uh, at the end of chapter 11. Now we are stepping to the side, almost kind of stepping back in chronology. And as I noted last week, Revelation has multiple threads of the story that are happening concurrently. They're just not written that way. And so we've seen one big arc of the action of the story. And now we are moving into a separate storyline that is in effect happening concurrently with the storyline that we sort of finished in chapter 11. It's not quite that cut and dry, but as we move into chapter 12, keep in mind that what we are reading about now is not happening after the seventh trumpet. It's really happening kind of during all of the action from the previous few chapters. So we, in a sense, go back, not back to the beginning, but there is there is this sense, though, of we're going to see meet a woman who gives birth to a son. We're going to meet the dragon. And all of this kind of happens almost since the beginning of time. It's not even really the beginning of this story because at least the first half of chapter 12 really, yeah, I guess I'm going to say the first half of chapter 12. We get, first two-thirds, we get another almost complete arc of the story in summary, and you'll see what I mean. We're only going to do two of the three sections of chapter 12 today. And section one is the woman and the dragon, right? That's going to be section one. Then section two, which is really the middle section of chapter 12, is Michael defeats the dragon. All of that tells basically like the whole rescue mission of God and is one particular thread. And so let's just jump in now that we are kind of clear about where we are in the story and what we're going to hear. Chapter 12, verse 1. Ready with your Bibles? Here we go. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, 
and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, we're going to pause there. So chapter 12 starts this new thread, and with that new thread, we get some new action, in particular by the dragon. Now, this woman is in heaven, and she is an important sign, a portent, right, and sign for what God is doing. So this woman represents God's plan of salvation, for saving the world from evil, and that saving effort will come in the form of her child. Now consider this scene. This woman is pregnant, and we should certainly not be surprised that the child that will be born is part of God's big saving plan, God's big rescue plan. Birth of a child, a child will rescue them. I mean, our minds certainly go to Jesus' birth, right? This is not that unclear, right? It's not that opaque. Anyone, any Christian really reading this story is going to think, oh, Mary and Jesus, right? Nothing wrong with that. But what I want us to do as careful students of Scripture is to not necessarily read into any Scripture passage what isn't actually there. And so, yes, could we understand this story kind of as a metaphorical pointing toward Mary and Jesus? Absolutely. However, the language that John uses in this passage Harken back to Psalm 2. It's important for us to understand that when John harkens back to Psalm 2, John is part of an early first century Christian desire to understand Jesus. And what I mean is, at this point in time, the great theology, the complex doctrine, ideas that are expressed very clearly and defined well in things like the Nicene Creed, are hundreds of years away. We don't have that kind of Christian unanimity, that kind of homogeneity about what is fundamentally, say, Christian. That comes much later. But people right now are trying to figure that out. People right now are trying to figure out who Jesus was, what Jesus means, how Jesus relates to God, and so on and so forth. John is putting in context a promise made in the Psalms that then Christians will begin to merge into understanding Jesus. I say all of that because we can't can't assume or presume or interpret with a lot of confidence that John was actually writing about Mary and Jesus. Because at this point in the first century, the idea of Jesus being 
fully divine and fully human. That has not been worked out yet. The idea of Jesus as Christ, as Messiah, is definitely there, but it's not been refined. And part of what happens to Mary's identity over the first few centuries of Christianity is people begin to ask important questions like, okay, so who is Jesus? If Jesus is divine, was Jesus half human and half God? No, that doesn't really work because Jesus has to be fully human in order for things to work out the way they do. Well, Jesus also has to be fully divine in order for things to work out the way they do. So Jesus then is fully human and fully divine, which is mathematically difficult, right? You can't be 200% of a thing. But theologically, Jesus is fully both. Well, how can God be born by or to a regular human person? And then begins a ball rolling about who then is Mary? Is Mary just a normal person who said yes? Perhaps. But what happens in the early centuries is that Mary begins to develop an identity that is at first a Christ-bearer, the Christotokos, which is effectively Mary was very separate from most humans. And then you get a few little things in there about how Mary was perfect too and sinless and all the other stuff, whatever. But Mary then becomes separate and held above just any other person. She becomes the Christ-bearer, the Christotokos. Later, Mary becomes the Theotokos, the actual God-bearer. So as you can see, Jesus is Messiah, yes. Jesus is the Christ, okay, yes. But Jesus is also God, which means Mary wasn't just a Messiah-bearer. Mary was a God-bearer. All of that happens hundreds of years after John writes this letter. It's important that we don't take these ideas that are pretty familiar to us and just put them on top of John's writing without any regard to the historic context of his place and time. Back to the woman and her child. <laughs> the woman in this story represents the hope of God. Who else could this woman be? Commentators and others have a few different suggestions, but probably the most popular idea as, you know, an alternate to Mary, because he could be prefiguring Mary, sure. But a historic alternate to Mary could be a hinting at or pointing to Eve as sort of the first mother, the mother of humanity. And out of the mother of humanity comes a child who will rule the nations. Or comes a child who is promised to use the iron rod, right? So what we have here in chapter 12 is we have a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now I've referenced Psalm 2 a couple times. Let me read just a few verses of Psalm 2 because this is important not only for John's reference here in chapter 12, but it also becomes one of the anchor Old Testament passages for understanding the complex puzzle of identity for Jesus. So here are just a few verses from Psalm 2. I'm going to begin in chapter 4. 
He who sits on in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here in Psalm 2, we get this very clear image of who the Messiah will be. Now, we know, based on our studies, our good discipleship studies, that the Jewish tradition anticipated a Messiah who would be physically strong, a warrior, a general, one who would literally, physically overthrow the oppressors. So the Jews are looking for someone who will take the rod of iron from that Davidic tradition, right? From the line of David comes a new military leader, a new ruler like King David, who would actually establish the power and the autonomy of Israel on earth. The Jews are looking for that Messiah. And instead, what these early Christians think has happened is that God's intention was never physical, earthly overthrowing of an oppressor, but this cosmic, huge overthrowing of the oppressor, the evil, the devil, the Satan, right? Who we're going to see in just a few verses. The idea of good and evil is something absolutely fundamental to the story of Revelation. And the idea that out of the womb of humanity comes this special child of God in order to rule the nations and to overthrow the evil is something that begins to help shape early Christians' understanding of Jesus. Okay, so reminder that I love questions. So make your questions, make your comments there in the field. Um, I see that someone asked if we're taking ashes into Preston Center today. The answer is unfortunately no. We talked about it and we decided that all of those areas, driving there and walking around, the businesses are closed today and so that foot traffic wouldn't really be there anyway. Um, I will tell you just as an aside, like disappointment upon disappointment, right? This pandemic is so frustrating. And then on top of that, we get this snowstorm and ice storm that shuts us down for part of last Sunday and on Ash Wednesday. You know, it is what it is and we have to do our best. Um, but questions, comments here about Bible study would love to have um, as we continue in chapter 12. So let's now pivot from the woman to the dragon. So the dragon is described as another portent, another sign here in this beginning verses of chapter 12. Let's just look back. Um, just like the woman, he's described as a sign. A great red dragon appeared in heaven with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. Ha! 
we get enough of a description here of this dragon that it is majestic, huge, fearsome, and horrible. This dragon's got it all, right? Size, scale, fear. And if that's not bad enough, this dragon is waiting, waiting to devour the child. In the Bible, there are two important moments when the idea of child death is part of the story of good and evil. We, of course, know this, right? We've got that fear of death for children at the birth of Moses, and we get that repeated in Matthew for, at the birth of Jesus. In both stories, Pharaoh and Herod represent this earthly evil, evil to the point of murdering babies, right? The killing of the innocents. Infanticide is, in a sense, the worst of the worst, like the deepest, greatest evil. And out of that deep, great evil, we get deliverers. So we get Moses, who delivers the people from Egypt and receives God's commandment, God's promise. Then we get Jesus delivered out of Herod's evil in order to deliver all, that new covenant, that new testament that establishes a brand new path for God's people on earth. Here we get the dragon looking to devour a baby. You will not have any Jews read this passage in the first century and not immediately think of the story of Moses. Now these new Jews, along with the Gentiles who are following Jesus, have heard the story of Herod's infanticide. And so it's very easy to link these two ideas together and to see the dragon as representative of the worst of the worst on earth. Except the dragon's not on earth yet. The dragon is in heaven. And we see very quickly that the dragon fails because the child is snatched up, swept away, up to God in God's throne, and the child receives this rod of iron. What's a dragon to do if they can't eat babies? Well, a dragon who is foiled from eating a baby begins to cause more trouble. Now, before we continue, I just couldn't help it because this is such a fantastic image. I wanted to go and get some art about this dragon. Um, and so I've got a few for you to see. Um, this one, let me see if it comes up. Oh, good. This one comes from the 16th century and it's from a Lutheran Bible. And it's the seven-headed serpent dragon, right? Dragon, serpent, same idea. Fighting against these armies of God. In effect, what we see in this image is the dragon fighting against the martyrs of the faith. We're going to get there in this next section. And then here's one more that I thought was just fantastic. Here we have the dragon presenting itself to the woman who is about to give birth. And you see kind of the heavenly host around them. 
And in that heavenly host, you see that the woman is going to ultimately be protected. You see kind of the, the space of protection behind her in that forest, and the baby will ultimately be swept back up into heaven. All right. I find art about this stuff fascinating. Um, you know, Revelation is one of those funny things where if you don't look for... <laughs> what am I going to say? I was about to say if you don't look for real art. Um, that's I don't mean to be judgy. Um, but if you don't search for historic art, you get all this kind of new agey weirdness. Um, so go check out some art for yourself. Um, unfortunately, in this next section, we get to Michael, which is really important to me. Um, and all the art about Michael is vertical, and I can't figure out how to make it horizontal with all the stuff I have at home, so we can't look at any of those images, but go search for those too. So we're at the end of the first section. We're going to pop into the second section of chapter 12. Michael defeats the dragon. All right, let's keep pr pressing on. Let's look at verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back. But they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, obviously, this is a very important section of Revelation for a couple reasons. It gives, first, it gives this clear image of devil and Satan as this ancient serpent, right? Which obviously harkens back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. So we get this very clear line, dots connected here, from that serpent, who was the deceiver, to this serpent in heaven, who is, even though pictured as a dragon, I mean, we get reptile, right? And is thrown down by Michael. So as I said, what we have here is... A moment when the dragon representing the evil is looking to devour that child. The child is saved by God. And so what does the dragon do as this embodiment of evil? The dragon begins to fight against the good forces of God. And so you get this war in heaven. Now let's just pause. War in heaven is disturbing. Am I right? The idea that there would be war in heaven is unsettling. What we see in this story is that Michael, the great archangel, remember from Daniel 10, Michael is on the scene as this warrior angel, almost like the general of God's angel army. And Michael, with his angels, fight on behalf of God, on behalf of the good, against this dragon, the devil, the Satan, and his evil angels in heaven, and they fight. At this point... What we have is Michael throwing the dragon to earth, defeating the dragon in heaven, throwing the dragon to earth. And then we might say, yay, Michael defeated the dragon. Except then we say, wait, what about the people on earth? So here we have Michael defeating the dragon. That's good and all. But then rather than like killing the dragon or defeating evil in the sense of like it's gone. Instead, we have Michael casting the dragon and his angel armies down to earth. Oh, crap. Because 
humanity and the earthlings. Okay, take that idea and just imagine for a moment you're trying to figure out how Jesus fits in to the great story of God's rescue mission. Part of the question that early Christians asked is, if Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus has died and been resurrected and, according to his disciples, ascended into heaven, okay, we got all that. What then is happening right now? <laughs> because, in a sense, you know, part of the whole first century is this pivot from, okay, Jesus comes and teaches, lives, he dies, he resurrects, he ascends into heaven, and he says, I'm coming back. And so his disciples say, we got it. You're coming back. We're going to go tell everybody about you. Get as many people to be part of the faithful as possible so that when you come back, we will save as many people as we can. Okay. So that all makes sense. So they rush around, disciples go all over creation. You've got them teaching people who then go teach people and they are planting churches and they're raising up these congregations. And in no sense did those disciples planting churches ever think that 2,000 years later, those churches would still be here. No way. Those disciples were expecting Jesus like any minute right? Jesus is coming any minute, and so you better save some souls. At this point, apostles, disciples, who actually knew Jesus literally, physically, have begun to die. Jesus isn't back yet. What is happening? All around them, Rome is getting more and more powerful more and more terrifying, and the Christians need an idea of hopefulness. John's whole point in this entire vision is giving them this word of hope. The way John constructs this word of hope is not cheap and shallow, but instead we get moments like this, where the great dragon was thrown down and we begin to understand, oh, bad stuff in the world, evil in the world, is actually as a result of this cosmic battle between good and evil. Early Christians and then the church construct a very vivid idea of evil demons, devil in the world that roots itself most graphically, I should say, back to this idea. Now, there is certainly plenty of historic evidence of this idea of demons and devil and all of that stuff. It doesn't start here. But what we get here is the first steps toward an articulation of evil and of devil and of Satan that becomes the popular understanding. We can thank Dante for the genuine popularization of the kind of devil that we think of, you know, like horns and evil and red and all that stuff. So it's not biblical, all of that. But we can see very clearly here 
that this great dragon is present, doing bad stuff, has been cast down to earth, and when that happens, the great dragon's now here with his angel army of demons and will begin to terrorize the earth. All right. <laughs> Let's continue with verse 10 before we unpack a lot more about this. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, remember this is John, proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Okay. This passage, effectively sort of a song of praise, right, is offered here as a means of pointing to the ultimate good, the ultimate end. We know John is trying to give his people a good word of hope. And a poem like this, a song of praise like this in the middle of what sounds horrible, is actually meant to point to the end, right? We know the end. The end is God wins. And in the end, things will be made new. The world, the creation, people who have died will be resurrected and made new. Last week, we talked about the idea that Christianity totally changed the game of political force forever, right? Political force was such that, you know, look at Rome. Rome's authority and might and power came because they threatened to kill you. People valued their life. And so they were willing to do whatever Rome wanted vis-a-vis -vis any empire because there was a threat of death. Christianity takes that idea, flips it on its head, and popularizes, popularizes is a bad word, um, celebrates or lifts up this idea of martyrdom as holy, as almost Christ-like, as very faithful, if one dies because one has kept their faith, then one becomes a martyr. And we see right here in this passage where God says, by, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. They, who did not cling to life even in the face of death. They, the martyrs, the martyrs we've already met chapters ago, are now becoming celebrated for their willingness to die for their faith. Now, one question is, you know, if empires couldn't achieve their purposes through the threat of death, how do they then move forward as strong and mighty? The answer to that is that they assimilated the religion into their own empire, which is what Rome did with Christianity, but that's a totally different lecture. Um, for now, 
We're focused right here on the first century. That has not happened yet. And the threat of death is still very real. And it will become more and more real. And John knows that. And John wants his people to stay strong in the face of whatever evil. And so he's given them a framework to understand the evil. The dragon and his angels, demons, have been cast to the earth. That's why stuff happens. That's why bad stuff is going on all around us because the evil ones are here. And we as people of faith are asked to follow God and to be faithful to God's promises, to God's words, to God's plan for salvation in order to ultimately defeat the evil. And we see in this song of praise right here in verse 11 that the faithful people have been part of the defeat of evil, which brings me to a question. Uh, who defeated the dragon? We get that Michael defeated the dragon, right? Michael and the good angels defeated the dragon and the bad angels. But then in the song of praise, we see that they have conquered this dragon by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and not clinging to life in the face of death. Well, that's not Michael, and that's not his angels. Those are people, people of faith on earth, saved by the blood of the Lamb. We are seeing in this song of praise a look forward, in effect, a summary of the whole story. If you look at the two sections of chapter 12 that we've done today, you could show that we get the entire arc of everything, right? We start with the woman, Eve, birthing humanity, humanity's promise to defeat the serpent, and then a look forward <clears throat> that humanity has defeated the serpent, that the child born with the rod of iron has overthrown and rules all the nations and through the blood of that lamb, we get these martyrs who put them all together are part of God's plan to defeat evil for good. This is complicated stuff. This is symbolism that is wild and hard, but it's something that is very important. John knows that these early Christians are struggling. You know, John knows that these early Christians are being oppressed, hurt, terrified by Rome. And he really wants them to stay strong. And this is important for us, right? We might be 2,000 years later, but here in the 21st century, I mean, look at us, right? I'm sitting at home because there's a pandemic and there's a snowstorm and people are without power or clean water. And let's be honest, our situation here may not be Roman oppression in Judea in the first century. But this is hard. It's hard when your life shifts. It's hard when your sense of security and predictability is swept out from under you because we are human and we seek security and predictability. We seek after and desire more than anything else that kind of security. Security is a promise made by the world, and that's the different kind of security that God promises us. That divine security 
is what God says and what we see in this vision is all that we need. It feels like pie-in-the-sky sort of fantasy hope to say that we don't need things like clean water or heat in the winter. But what John is saying here is something that can be applicable to any of us at any time, whether it's no power in water, whether it's cancer, whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's mental illness, you name it. Whatever weight we bear, whatever hurt we have, whatever wounds that are left unhealed, what John says in this letter is a word to us that we are in between these holy times. We are in between when God began all of this and when God will bring all of this into newness and be recreated in total goodness. John gives his people a word, and I think that word is good for us too. At this point, you know, we reach the end of a big arc that explains once again bad things happen along the way, but along the way, we have God's renewed promises over and over again. And while we're on the path and we may not be able to see the end, we know what the end will be. We know God will win. Next week, I'm going to take this last third of chapter 12 and kind of tack it on to chapter 13 because it all kind of goes together. Because like I said, the dragon, the dragon is cast down. And the dragon's got a new buddy down on earth. And we're going to have these beast dragon moments. And it's important for us to take a look at all of that so that we know kind of where the arc of the story is and we can better understand and deconstruct and apply what John is writing to what we do in our own life today. Now, a reminder, at noon, so in about 45 minutes, we are going to be worshiping together virtually, and you can do that right here on Facebook, you can do that on YouTube, or you can go to the church's website if you do stmichael.org. You can see it right there in the banner or stmichael.org slash Ash Wednesday will take you right to the page where you can stream on your TV or smart device as well. So I hope you will join me for our Ash Wednesdays, and it begins at noon. Thank you all so much for being with me today. As I said at the beginning, I hope that you are able to stay safe and warm. I hope that if you do not have power right now, you will get it back very soon or you will find a safe, warm place to stay. We'll be back together next week when it's supposed to be like in the 60s. So thank God for that. God bless you all. I will see you in a week. Bye.